Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Professor Alexandra Natapoff. Alexandra is a law professor at Harvard University. She writes about criminal courts, public defense, plea bargaining, wrongful convictions, and race and inequality in the criminal justice system. Her new book, which is an expanded edition of her older book, is called Snitching, Criminal Justice Informants and the Erosion of American Justice. We discuss a phenomenon that's rarely encountered outside of shows like The Sopranos and The Wire, which is the use of criminal informants in the American justice system. Not all countries allow cops and prosecutors to reduce an accused criminal sentence in exchange for his cooperation in other investigations. But most local and state agencies in America, she argues, are allowed to do this with no documentation and no transparency. Alexandra and I talk about the advantages as well as the flaws of this system. We discuss the risk of informants giving false information or even planting evidence to reduce their own sentences. We talk about the triangular relationship between cops, informants, and prosecutors. We talk about the secretive nature of the informant system and how that prevents academics from studying it. And I press Alexandra on whether her proposal for transparency in the informant system would hinder the cops' ability to solve violent crimes and protect unsafe neighborhoods. So without further ado, Alexandra Natapoff. Okay, Professor Alexandra Natapoff, thanks so much for coming on my show. Well, thanks so much for having me. So we're here to talk about the new edition of a book that you originally released around a decade ago called Snitching. And it's a topic that I think most people are aware of, mainly from television shows like The Wire and The Sopranos. And um, I'm going to have a lot of questions about it from my reading your book. But I guess my first question is just how you became interested in the topic of snitching of the use of criminal informants in police investigations. Well, it was really a twofold interest. Before I became a law professor, I was a public defender in Baltimore, Maryland. And so I was representing people in the federal criminal system. And it was uh, shocking to me how pervasive the reality of cooperation and informing and snitching was. It affected every case. It was always on the table. It really shaped the way we understood what it meant to represent someone. And it was something I wasn't really prepared for as a trained attorney. And it always fascinated me how influential it was. And then, of course, I was also living and working in Baltimore City itself. And I was learning from my friends and my neighbors and the kids in the neighborhood that they knew all about snitching. They knew that drug dealers in the community had deals with police, which permitted them to remain on the street. They knew that there were people in their own families who were under pressure. It was just a pervasive presence that was very difficult to see from the outside. And so ever since then, I've always thought it was more important part of our criminal system than people really understand and give it credit for. And so that's why I've been working on it and writing about it for so many years. I would echo that. I mean, I've had many conversations about criminal justice on this podcast 
podcasts with people on all over the political spectrum who came come at it from various angles. And I, I'm pretty sure not once have any of us discussed snitching and, and the use of informants. I mean, every other aspect of the criminal justice system, I feel like I've touched, but this is, um, it's a topic that is huge and kind of invisible and not really talked about and which is why I think most people only think of it when we see it dramatized on a TV show like The Wire, which it was central to, or The Sopranos, which it was in some seasons central to as well. So that leads me to the question, what do you think is the biggest public misperception that a typical person would have about snitching and the use of, of informants? I'm going to pick up on your description of the phenomenon, which is that it is huge and invisible. (laughs) And I think people don't realize that it's huge. It's enormous. It affects so many aspects of our criminal system, but because it's invisible, because the criminal system is designed to obscure and hide the use of informants, not to produce data and information about it as scholars, as advocates, as attorneys, much less as members of the public, we don't really have access to understanding the workings of it. Let me put it this way. We can't understand the use of criminal informants unless we understand a basic fact about the American criminal system writ large, which is that 95% of all the convictions in this country are the result of a plea, not of a trial. We almost never actually litigate guilt in this country. Everyone cuts a deal. So in effect, we have already established this enormous market in which defendants and suspects are negotiating with the government in a relatively opaque way. We don't learn about those negotiations. We only learn about the resulting deal that everyone cuts. Underneath that world lies the informant deal, an even more secretive, more deregulated, more under the table phenomenon. But every deal at least opens the possibility for cooperation. And American law not only permits that, but incentivizes it. And that is why it is huge. So I learned from your book that the FBI requires every use of an informant to be documented and written down but the vast majority of local and state police departments do not have such a policy. So, you know, whatever is said between policemen and a suspect on the street or somewhere else exists only in their memories and and nowhere else. So there's this huge, we may have the tip of the iceberg of what goes on written down, but the great majority of it is just not transparent. Isn't Does it, what would you say to someone who said, doesn't it have to be secretive? I mean, doesn't the process rely on secrecy? Because we're, you know, obviously an informant can't be known to be an informant or else they won't be able to get much information and their life may be taken if they're known to be an informant. On the other hand, you say, you know, informants are known to be informants sometimes throughout the community, even by children. So to what extent is the secretiveness a key element of the process? So there's certainly no denying that becoming an informant is highly risky and that secrecy is important to the safety of informants. But the secrecy surrounding informant use is far greater than any uh, than the secrecy required to protect, for example, the identity of an individual informant. As you just pointed out, the kinds of deals 
that are negotiated between police and informants uh, remain secret. We don't require the government to keep track of the deal. Put aside the question of the name of the actual informant, the fact that the government is negotiating away arrests and and guilt in exchange for information. Uh, We do not require the government to keep track of the additional crimes committed by their informants, Mm. both crimes that they negotiate leniency for, but also the other crimes that many informants continue to commit while they are working for the government about which the government knows. Representative Stephen Lynch here in Massachusetts introduced legislation some number of years ago uh, that would have, it was called the Confidential Informant Accountability Act, and it would have required federal investigative agencies like the FBI to report to Congress all the serious crimes committed by its informants, not their names, not to put anyone at risk, but just to disclose the fact that in the last six months, informants working for the government, being paid by the government, uh, being controlled in some sense by the government, committed murder, kidnapping, extortion, sold this amount of cocaine, exported this amount of, Mm. of meth. The legislation was designed to create more transparency without endangering the individual investigations and the individual informants. Uh, He's introduced that legislation a number of times, but the resistance to any kind of disclosure is so strong in the law enforcement community and in sort of the mythology around the secrecy of informants that it's very difficult to get information. So that legislation has not passed. Correct. What is their argument? Is it that I don't want to do, this is bullshit red tape and I I don't want the extra hours of work? Or is there some actual non sort of laziness based reason that they think the secretiveness is important? So earlier iterations of, of the legislation, the FBI, representatives of the FBI told legislators that if agents were held more responsible for their informants, it would be very hard to get agents to run informants, which begs the question about whether agents should be running informants in ways that they're afraid of disclosing. Um, The argument, of course, is for individual informant safety, but that's not an issue in this kind of legislation. As you noted earlier on, the FBI does have some of the most extensive documentation requirements for the use of informants, sort of the gold standard, if you will, of keeping track of its informants. The reason they have that, the reason they are subject to those rules is because of famous debacles in the FBI use of informants who were themselves murderers, who themselves were engaged in extortion and kidnapping and bribery in connection with their investigation of the mafia. And Congress and the Department of Justice cracked down and said, you can't use murderers as informants and then hide the fact that they have killed people from other branches of government, which is one of the reasons those guidelines exist. But above and beyond individual informant safety, law enforcement tells us that they need secrecy in order to cut these deals. And I think that that is the core argument that we need to push back against. We require accountability from our government agencies in all kinds of sensitive spaces and a public policy of this magnitude that affects so many lives and so many cases and so much of our criminal apparatus deserves to be better accounted for. Strikes me that there is an analogy to something like bail reform. Bail reform is a controversial issue. You have people on both sides of it. And most of the argument revolves around whether people out on bail are committing lots of crimes that they wouldn't be committing if they weren't able to make bail. And you see news articles, you know, someone let out on bail, committed some awful crime. You see scholars sort of 
weighing the costs and benefits of that, having some data. But it strikes me that if someone like yourself were to ask the question, how much crime is being committed by people, by informants, and does our informant, like, do, do are the costs outweighing the benefits, right? Are the crimes prevented greater in number and severity than the crimes committed, you probably would not be able to answer the question because you don't have that data to begin with, right? That's sort of the core issue. No one can answer that question. There is no official in the United States who knows how many informants are being used, the number of crimes they are used to solve, the number of crimes they are permitted to commit, the kinds of victimization that they themselves create. So because we do not require a criminal system to collect and or share that kind of data, rightly put it, we can't do the math. We can't do the cost-benefit analysis when the government tells us we need informants to investigate crime and it's worth it and you should take our word for it and permit us to keep it our processes secret. Part of that deal is refusing to give us the data that would actually support the conclusion that it's in the interests of public safety is one of the things that really struck me when I was working in Baltimore, the perception in the community that informants were part of the crime problem, that they weren't being used to solve crime so much as they were themselves being permitted to commit crimes with impunity. That's a terrible message to send to a community. That's a terrible message to send to young people. And that cost benefit, we have not grappled with that cost benefit analysis. Okay, so I'm trying to, um, not that I've ever been a cop or even really know many cops, but I'm trying to imagine what a cop, an intelligent cop might say. They might say something like this. Listen, you know, I have X years experience in this particular city that I work in. I'm working in a scenario where, say, 50% of murders go without prosecutions. I need every tool that I can get my disposal to solve these crimes. And um, it's a bit like being a surgeon in that even a very good surgeon occasionally is going to get sued because of a human error or or something that inevitably goes horribly wrong and that's why they have doc, you know surgeons have so much insurance what happens if i i make a pretty reasonable judgment call on somebody being an informant that could lead me to a big bust and then i get unlucky and they commit a like a triple murder they kill a pregnant woman when you know that was not so foreseeable when i met them And now my name is tied to that decision and that's all people will ever think of me. Doesn't that really hamstring my ability to to do my job? Yeah, there's a lot packed in there. So first of all, we don't need to guess because intelligent, experienced police and investigators have written books about their experience with informant handling. And they have said, beware of informants, (laughs) beware of the, the traps that handlers all too often fall into, which is to become overly dependent on their informants and their informant information because it is helping advance their careers. It's helping them Mm. make their cases. Beware of the temptation to cut corners and break laws on behalf of your informants. And these experienced police officers give us examples of best practices, which look very much like the kinds of transparency measures that you and I have been discussing, that you should have supervisors, that officers should not be able to use informants on their own without any kind of disclosure or supervision to their own departments, which in fact happens all the time. But these officers recommend against it. You also hypothesized the officer who says, look, I made the best decision I could under the circumstances, but then some terrible accidental thing happened, which is a little bit of the bad apple story. You know, it's a good practice, but sometimes 
terrible things go wrong, just like in surgery or just like in any other aspect of the criminal system. But what we see in the informant market, in this underground, opaque, deregulated space, is that often law enforcement does not make reasonable decisions. In fact, in part because they know that those decisions will never be checked by their own supervisors, by a court, by even sometimes by a prosecutor, because it is so secretive. So we see uh, police relying on informants they know to be unreliable. We see police cutting deals with very serious, violent offenders who have victimized people in order to catch a larger number of what we might call little fish, sort of people who have committed much less serious, much less culpable offenses, but it's better for their numbers. We see long-term ongoing relationships between investigators and their informants that lead to cover-ups and corruption and rule-breaking in both spaces. So the culture of secrecy in the world of informants not only makes it impossible to do the math of the cost-benefit analysis, it also promotes bad decision-making because of the lack of transparency. Mm. Let me tell you a story. Uh, There was a police department some years ago where the supervisors, it might've been St. Louis, I could be wrong about that, where the police department got wind of the fact that some of its line officers were misusing informants. They were lying about their informants. They were engaged in corrupt relationships with their informants. And so they leaned on the line officers. The the police supervisors went to their line officers and said, we need to know more information about how you are using your informants. And the police went to their union who sued, sued the supervisors to enjoin them, to stop them from getting that information from their own police employees, arguing that it would interfere too greatly with the police officer's discretion in using their informants and somewhat surprisingly, that it would threaten the police officers' careers if their own supervisors knew how they were handling informants, which in my line of business sounds like a confession that they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. So the culture of secrecy and lack of accountability reaches all the way down such that even police departments may have trouble figuring out how their own officers are using informants. That's not about protecting individual informant safety. That's about preserving a culture of secrecy and discretion and impunity. Mm. There's always been an irony, I think, in the conversation about snitching, which is that cops famously also don't snitch on each other. And and I often hear it called, uh, what do people call it? The blue code of silence or the blue wall of silence? There's some term that people have for this, but I've always found the kind of symmetry between criminals and the cops to be interesting on that front. And I I learned from your book that Jewish law has in the Torah, there is some rule about a Jew is not supposed to sell out or snitch on another Jew. So um, I found it funny that the motto snitches get stitches goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So you tell some stories in your book about snitches giving false information, which could make perfect sense from their perspective. If the trade is, I don't go to prison or my term gets cut in half or my indictment gets delayed. And all I have to do is tell you who is a drug dealer in this, in this housing project. It's very tempting for me to make up a name of somebody I don't like or someone I think could be easily framed. Can you talk a little bit about how police guarantee that informants aren't just lying to them? So police tell us that there is no guarantee. The unreliability problem, the the risk that informants are making things up is maybe their best known risk. The innocence movement has made it very clear that informants 
in general and jailhouse informants in particular have been an, an enormous source of wrongful conviction. So we actually know a little more about that dysfunction than we otherwise would because of there have been so many exonerations of people mm-hmm. accused by informants of serious of serious crimes. And what we learn is that police and prosecutors as well cannot guarantee that their informants are telling the truth. In fact, police and prosecutors may be the most reliant on a snitch in cases where they have the least good other evidence. So, and it stands to reason, if you had great Mm. DNA evidence, you wouldn't need a snitch. It's only in those cases where you don't have a lot that the informant becomes very valuable. So now you're relying on that information to make your case. And it creates what some scholars have called a kind of, a kind of tunnel vision in order to make the case. They need the informant information to be good. So they protect that information and bolster it without actually checking it in a rigorous way. Mm. Another question I have is uh, there's this interesting relationship between the, the policeman or the agent and the snitch and the prosecutor. So there's there's actually three different parties involved in this relationship, right? It's not just you know the criminal justice system in a bilateral relationship with the snitch. There's each party here: the snitch, the agent, and the prosecutor had may have different incentives and different goals. And what I got from your book was that the police officer or the agent as the main point of contact with the informant may have a lot of leeway. It's almost as if you and I were negotiating for something, but we rarely talk to each other directly. And there was someone in the middle of us who was the messenger between us, but also had their own interests. Obviously, that person seems like they have a lot more power actually than either one of us because they get to decide what to tell you about what I said and what to tell me about what you said so as to advantage themselves. Am I correct in perceiving that that is kind of a dynamic running through this? And can you just sort of talk about the differences between the, a, a policeman's incentives and the, a, a prosecutor's incentives? You're really referring to a much bigger truth about the criminal system, which is that there is no one criminal system. The criminal system in the United States is highly fragmented and highly local. Most of it takes place on the state and local level. Almost none of it, very small percentage of it is federal. And then within each space, we have multiple players, as you point out. So there's some kinds of informant deals in which there no prosecutor ever is involved at all. The informal deal that I discuss at the beginning of the book between Atlanta police and a suspect selling drugs in Atlanta, they cut a deal with the suspect. If you give us a tip, we'll let you walk away. He gave them a tip for an address that turned out to be bad. As a result, the police killed the 92-year-old grandmother who lived in that house based on a bad tip. There was no prosecutor involved. That was just a conversation between police and an informant in Atlanta, a very routine kind of conversation. At the other end of the spectrum of formality, if you will, there's some kinds of informant deals that are largely worked out between the defendant and the prosecutor in a much more formal setting. These are the deals in white collar cases. The the hedge fund managers accused of insider trading, the political corruption cases, these high level deals where defendants tend to be very well represented. They're negotiating not with a police officer on a street corner, but in an office with a prosecutor. Those deals tend to be formal, written down. We tend to learn about them after the fact because they're 
more formalized. And so in those cases, it is the prosecutor running most of the negotiation as opposed to the kind of more informal street deals that you describe. There's one more player you didn't mention, which is you didn't mention the judge. You didn't mention the court. And usually in criminal law, we think that the courts play an important role. And notice how the informant deal itself really sidelines the judiciary. It says, you know, the court is never going to know most of what went on. At the end of the day, the, the prosecutors might go to a judge and recommend a sentence based on the cooperation of a defendant. But we really have rendered this market is really judicially unsupervised. The court only comes into play at the very, very end of the day, if at all. So um, most of what you talk about are cases of informants who have themselves committed or accused of committed committing crimes and therefore have a real direct incentive to cooperate to reduce their punishment. But obviously, you know, the police are also very interested in people that just have information and are not criminals at all, are not accused of anything, but are essentially witnesses. And as you say, in tight-knit communities where everyone knows everybody, often the person who just murdered someone else is kind of, is, is, is known it's sort of known who did it, or at least in many cases it is. So, I mean, as many problems as there are with informants that are committed, that are accused of committing crimes, do you see these same problems among just, you know, witnesses in general who, who may have information as valuable or, or do these problems not really come into play? Yeah, I, I think there are problems, but they're different problems. So one of the reasons I wrote the book is because of the underlying phenomenon that our criminal legal system buys and sells guilt, that an American law permits it. Many countries don't actually permit law enforcement to trade or to commodify guilt, if you will, in the way that our plea bargaining system and our informant system permit. And so informants work for all kinds of benefits. They can all, some informants don't work for leniency, they work for money. The book isn't really about that. It's about how we have distorted the meaning of criminal justice to accommodate this market. Basically said that guilt and leniency and sentencing and crime and punishment is all negotiable if you are sufficiently useful to the government. And it's that compromise that I think sends this terrible message, this terrible sort of moral relativism message to everybody in the criminal system. It is different from the problems faced by witnesses and communities, but it's not entirely unrelated, I think, for the following reason. And again, this was something I learned firsthand in Baltimore, but we've seen it in cities all over the country where people in communities who understand that some people are working off their crimes because they're cooperating with police and then continuing to commit those crimes with impunity mm. have been sent a message that telling that law enforcement isn't necessarily what you think it is, that it's not a simple act to share information or evidence with the government because you don't know what the government is going to do with it. Maybe they'll enforce, but maybe they'll cut a deal. Maybe they'll protect you. Maybe they won't. And I think that the informant market has been part of the destabilization and the erosion of relationships in high crime communities where communities are over-policed. So people are suffering heavily from being stopped more often, from being, from suffering from criminal records and all the collateral consequences of criminal conviction. People are getting long sentences, particularly in drug enforcement. And the world is telling them, we're willing to punish you. We're willing to undermine your lives and your families because you committed a crime. And then on the very same terrain, 
the criminal system says, unless, of course, we're willing to cut a deal, in which case the fact that you committed a crime is the beginning of a negotiation and it's actually something that we're willing to work with. And I think that moral relativism is really caustic. When I was in Baltimore, everyone understood it. Kids understood that this was not how law enforcement was supposed to work. This was not true justice. This was deal making. Mm. And so we have seen, and this is not my insight, many advocates and scholars have pointed out that the adage that you mentioned earlier, snitches get stitches and stop snitching, is part of a larger conversation about distrust between highly policed communities and the police and the informant market is part of that distrust. Yeah. So I agree that um, there's something about how you put it, negotiating guilt, uh, commodifying guilt, which suggests an underlying lack of faith in our laws themselves, right? Like if either our laws really matter and you breaking this crime ought to lead to this punishment, or this law is a bit of a pretext for us to be able to enforce some other laws. And this is a disagreement I've had with uh, Ralph Mengual, who is a, he he just released a book. He works at the Manhattan Institute um, called Criminal Injustice. I had him on a few months ago. And I agree with him on many things. But one thing we disagreed about is the legal status of marijuana. And you know, one of his defenses of marijuana being illegal was that often what cops are actually doing is they've got someone who's actually committed much worse crimes, which for whatever reason, they can't get, they can't really prove in a court of law, but they can get this guy on weed. So he actually, in fact, as a matter of fact, is a violent offender, but is charged, is charged as a low level drug offender. And that may be the only way a cop could have gotten him behind bars. So I say, I understand that I could even acknowledge that it may be a good thing in the case of a single person, any, especially a particularly violent offender that you kind of want behind bars, however you can get him there. But if you accept that we should actually make, it's okay for a relatively harmless drug to be illegal because of this instrumental rationale, well then why not make cigarettes illegal? I think a lot of criminals smoke cigarettes. In fact, I'd be willing to bet they're disproportionately likely to smoke cigarettes. And you could probably put a lot of people behind bars that are actually much worse, whose crimes are much worse than selling or, 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 you know, so it, it seems to me the message of the law has to be that this is illegal because it's inherently harmful to society at the same time. So I, all of that, I agree with in the abstract, but at the same time, we are dealing with situations in American cities with, especially in like concentrated particular neighborhoods with very high murder rates um, relative to all of our peer countries and relative to everywhere else in the country where we, someone like myself takes for granted living in safety. You have like certain subsections of neighborhoods that are disproportionately poor and black with like 10 or 20% clearance rates of murder. And though most of the people in these neighborhoods have serious problems with the police, they also really want the police there and need the police there and call 911 often. And so I struggle with that because all your criticisms of um, the snitching system seem very reasonable to me. But at the same time, I struggle to take a tool away in a situation that is kind of a quiet, ongoing national emergency, if that makes sense. And I'm curious how you wrestle with that. Yeah, great questions. I think big issues that you put on the table. One is this idea of pretext that we're going to use marijuana or tax evasion or something that it's easy to get you on, not because we care about that, 
but because we think, but we can't prove that you did something worse. I just want to drill down a little bit. The way you described it is that for some reason we can't prove it. So if we believe in innocent until proven guilty, if we believe in rule of law, if we believe that only people who are proven legally guilty by the government should be punished, then it really should matter to us whether people can be proved guilty or not. That in other words, we should be suspicious of the workaround of the entire premise that we should only punish people for whom there is evidence of guilt, that who can be convicted under the rules promulgated public rules promulgated in our criminal system. As soon as we let go of that, as soon as we say, you know what, there's a whole bunch of people who are actually criminals running around. We can't prove it, but we should get tools and give the police and prosecutors more tools to do an end run around the system that we think should work to get them so that we can make it easier. That's a very big compromise that in a sense, as you point out, it's saying we don't really care about criminal adjudication, the Bill of Rights, the rule of law, innocent until proven guilty. Instead, we're going to defer to law enforcement's secret knowledge, hunches, decisions about who they think is really guilty without having to go through the democratic mechanisms of proving people guilty. So that's, and I don't think we will not ban informant deals as long as we have plea bargaining. I didn't write the book to get rid of informant deals. That's a much bigger conversation about American criminal system. We permit negotiation over guilt, which means we're going to permit negotiation over cooperation and evidence. But that doesn't mean it should become the great loophole to, you know, to every single rule. If we care about law, if we don't care about law, then we're in a free fall and we're in a, in a very different situation. And that takes us to your second question about the about low uh, about high murder rates and low clearance rates in so many disadvantaged communities and communities of color. And you asked me how I grapple with that. And so I think that it's a false choice between more policing and less policing to give police and prosecutors more discretion and more tools to do end runs around the law, to invade more people's privacy on the theory that we need more safety in these communities. I think that over-enforcement, too many informant deals, too much stop and frisk, too many arrests for marijuana. I think that over-enforcement is not the opposite of under-enforcement, it's it's corollary. Over-enforcement and under-enforcement is what happens in, it's a form of disadvantage itself. That's how you know a community is disadvantaged because it is both over-policed and under-policed. It is overexposed to the risks and violence of policing and informants and order maintenance policing, and at the same time exposed to the risks of under-enforcement, long 911 response times, smaller ratios of detectives to the crime rate, as we saw from Jill Leovi's book, Ghetto Side in Los Angeles. And so more policing, more, this is really the theory of broken windows. The theory of broken windows is let's over-enforce misdemeanors and round everybody up for graffiti and spitting and littering because that will help us catch the more serious criminals up the food chain. And it didn't help us catch more criminals up the food chain, but what it did was ruin people's lives, give people criminal records, decimate the the relationships between communities and police. And those things can happen when communities lack the political traction to be treated by the criminal system respectfully on both fronts. 
the right kind of policing and not too much policing. And so that's that's how I understand it. I don't think that more snitches are a cure for the murder rate. Police and prosecutors can use as many snitches as they want today. That is the state of American law. There is almost no constraint on who they can turn into an informant, what they can bargain for, what they can reward with. And we still have those disproportionate murder rates and clearance rates in those very same communities. So I don't think that over-policing is a cure for under-policing. I think that's what happens in communities in which we are not investing the right amount of resources and social capital and political capital. Okay. So a slightly different question, one that you don't really address in your book, but I think you'll have heard of this phenomenon surely. I remember a a friend of mine used to live on, I believe it was 109th in Amsterdam in New York where I live. And it's uh, right by Columbia where I went to school. And for whatever reason on this particular block, there was just in two years, just like so many open drug deals and so many, a concentration of criminal activity that was fundamentally different than the surrounding area. And like that you wouldn't have predicted. You don't feel you're going into a bad neighborhood when you go into this area. It's just like, for whatever reason, this block just had, it was nuts. And I remember talking to someone who had lived in New York a long time and they believed that this area had been designated as a kind of red zone where cops agreed not to punish criminals so long as they stayed in this on this block right and i remember there was a there was also an episode of, of the wire where they did this with a particular area of, of baltimore they sectioned off a couple blocks and they said our solution to the crime problem is we're going to give you a green light to commit crime over here and then 95% of the city will say oh my area's suddenly so nice how did the police you know clean up the streets well they didn't they just so i'm curious if you know is this do you know anything about this is this a total myth and urban legend and whatever or is this a practice that police have actually done in in certain cases yeah so i can't speak to that i don't i don't have anything other than impressions and anecdotal stories the way you know in the same way that you're presenting but i i will say this it's a it follows from the kinds of discretion that we give to police and prosecutors to allocate the resource of lawfulness. So we, in the same way that we permit police to decide this particular drug dealer is more useful to me as an informant than they are locked up and therefore I'm going to permit them to continue operating because they're a good source of information for me and making my cases, you can see how pressure, gentrification pressures, um, pressures of Comstat and the kinds of numbers that police departments are often under pressure would cause them to make that kind of deal, as we were talking about a moment ago, to sacrifice the residents of some place to the interests of residents of some other place that the police decide. And it's that kind of distribution of lawfulness that we have essentially left unregulated. And I think that if we had more information about the kinds of crimes and the kinds of locations where those crimes are tolerated through the use of informants, we would get a much better picture of the kind of deals that police and prosecutors are essentially cutting on our behalf. So you're republishing this book some 10 years or so after the original publication with updated stories and so forth with the same general line of of argumentation. I'm curious, do we know much more about snitching now than when you originally published it a decade ago? Or, you know, like what, I guess, what has changed in your view since you published the first version? I published the second version because so much has changed. 
So I, when I wrote the first edition back in 2009, there was almost no reform legislation to speak of anywhere in the country. It was very rare. It was not an issue on informant use was not an issue on the criminal justice agenda. We almost never talked about it. As, as you yourself mentioned, you talked to so many people about the criminal system, almost never talk about informants. And it was such a hidden, unknown phenomenon that when I wrote about it, people didn't believe me <laughs> that this was actually happening. That world has changed. More than half of all states have engaged in reform because they know this is happening. Part of it is the innocence movement, uncovering more and more wrongful convictions. Part of it is, unfortunately, the number of tragedies, uh, the number of people who have died, young people who have died because they were informants uh, that have come to light. Journalists have been very, very important in the last decade, uncovering the kinds of tragedies and debacles. Uh, there have been a number of very high profile scandals. The Department of Justice just released two weeks ago a report that it took them six years to issue on the jailhouse snitch scandal of unconstitutional behavior in Orange County, California. And so our, our public knowledge of the informant world is greater. Journalistic and legislative and advocacy attention to it is greater. Legislative attention to it is greater. And now we are starting to see start emphasis on starting to see willingness to engage in reform, willingness for on the parts of states, for example, to legislate requirements that prosecutors, for example, create databases and track their informants. You asked me at the beginning of our conversation, what about the safety of informants? These, these are databases internal to the prosecutor's office where they track informants so they know who's been cutting deals with their own offices around the state something that an individual prosecutor wouldn't necessarily ever be able to find out without it. We have legislation requiring more safeguards at trials when the government does want to use an informant as a witness, better discovery, better disclosure, more hearings, more guardrails against wrongful conviction. And so the landscape, the conversation, the landscape has changed enormously in the past decade. And I thought it was uh, important to update the book so that people who are interested in this space can see what's really going on, what the possibilities are, what the debate has been over the past decade that made it possible to have these conversations. So many different people have worked to make this a live, a live issue. As you point out, the when you say the basic analysis hasn't changed that much. The basic analysis is that we are still running an informant market. We still have a relatively deregulated, unconstrained set of deals going on underneath the entire criminal system in which police and prosecutors are almost entirely free to negotiate with, to offer, to coerce, to forgive in exchange for information. That has not changed. But what has changed is public understanding of the potential costs, legislative understanding of the potential costs. And we know more about some of the kinds of injustices that can flow from the practice. Okay. So final question. I know your research focuses on, on America, but I'm, I'm always curious to compare the American way of doing things to other countries. And you mentioned that other countries, there are some countries which don't allow any kind of negotiation or um, mitigating sentences in exchange for cooperation and so forth. So is that true? And, and I'm curious, you know, which countries those are. And I'm also curious whether, I mean, I, I think it would be so tempting as a 
cop in almost any circumstance to sort of do that under the table, right? Even if it were technically not allowed, I could still imagine it being outlawed in a country, but cops, you know, sort of forming informal relationships with people on the street in order to get information they cared about. So I'm curious, like, you know, what countries, are there nations that do it exceptionally well that we could model ourselves after? Are there nations with just other weird kind of status quos that you find interesting and, and so forth? I think the best way to understand it, to the extent that there's research on it, it's not a very well-researched or well-documented phenomenon for all the same all the same reasons that we've been discussing. But I think the best way to understand it is there's an international spectrum of legal systems that permit this market to flourish. And the United States is at the extreme end. Mm. We run the most or the least regulated system. We permit the most negotiation over the most thing. And then every other country restrains its own state apparatus, its own penal apparatus from cutting deals, not only in the informant space, but in the plea bargaining space. We also permit plea bargaining to a greater extent than most countries is part and parcel of mm-hmm. the same model of how we do criminal justice. And so in the book, there's a, a section on the international comparisons where you can see that many countries in Western Europe really resist the notion that guilt should be commodified, that individual police officers or prosecutors should be able to negotiate away someone's guilt. Either they did it or they didn't. Either this rule should kick in or they shouldn't. With the caveat that in the realm of drug enforcement and international drug enforcement, the few people, the few scholars who have written about this indicate that there is quite a bit of pressure on uh, nations working with the United States to accede to or to adopt the American models. It's kind of crept into the world of international drug enforcement. But the often other countries refer to the American model with some derision. It's as if we will trade, we will permit anything to be traded. And other countries feel like that's an improper use of the criminal law. All right, Alexandra, thanks so much for your time. This was a really interesting topic that I've never gotten to think about at length like this. And I I hope people found it interesting. The book is called Snitching, Criminal Informants and the Erosion of American Justice. And before I let you go, can you tell my audience where to find you if they're interested in uh, looking at some of your other work? So I'm a professor at Harvard Law School and you can uh, just look me up on the my faculty page on the website and it has a link to my blog, which collects reform and legislation and stories about the use of informants at snitching.org. And you can look at my other work on the criminal system uh, also on that faculty webpage. Thanks. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.